Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have another host on with me. His name is Alex Bernardo of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, which is also part of the Christians for Liberty Network. And Alex and I are back 22 episodes later to talk about what we've read this summer. We launched episode 325 where we talked about how we like to read, what we've been reading, some recommended so check out episode 325. Alex, thanks for jumping back on with me to talk about our reading list. Hey, I really appreciate having me on, Doug. This is going to be fun. So did you finish as many books this summer? <laughs> the summer isn't, well, I guess summer is over for you because you actually went back to work as a school teacher. But um, oh, did you read as many oh, yeah. books that you meant to this summer? I did get to read plenty of books. There are several that I wish I could have read that I did not, but I'm not unhappy with what I was able to, to read this summer. As always, my, my to-read shelf is pretty long. What's the longest book you read this summer? Oh my gosh, I would have to go back and think about that. Um, I'm looking, I'm was trying to Dominion? think over. Because that was a pretty long one. No, I did not read Dominion this summer. I think. Oh, okay. That was yours. No, I, I don't know. I, there was one book that I read that was like 450 pages long, but I cannot for the life of me think of what that was right now. I should have mm. brought, had my, uh, yeah. my reading list up in front of me. But I know I got like, I know I got like 13 done in two months. So that was pretty good. That's good. I mean, it helps that you didn't have a job. <laughs> Yeah, it really does. It really does. So what is your reading habit in the summer like then? Because obviously, I know you get up early and you go running or do some sort of exercise, but like, do you spend your morning drinking coffee and reading or what do you do? Yeah, I do. So like, I get up at 4.30 in the mornings during the school year because I exercise before I go into work and that's like the only time that I have. So I still get up very early during the summertime and work out. And then I usually try to spend about an hour to an hour and a half reading in the morning. I always do 15 minutes with my Bible and then I'll spend about an hour or a little bit more than that reading whatever book I'm currently going through. And then in the afternoons, I try to take some time and read a little bit more in the afternoon as well, especially if it's like over the summer, I had to read a lot of books for the podcast because you know, like you're know, you in the same position mm-hmm. that I am, Doug, where you have publishers sending you books and they want you to read them so you can get the author on and everything. So I read a bunch of those over the summer and was trying to get through a lot yeah. of that material. The great thing is that my daughter is like eight years old and she's really into reading now too. So in the afternoon, sometimes she just wants to relax and read for a little bit. So we'll do that as well. And like one of the things about being a teacher that people don't realize is that we get the summer break off as sort of a sabbatical in order to like study and refine what we teach in the classroom. And I feel like I'm one of the only teachers that like takes that aspect of my job seriously. I really want to become like the best (laughs) teacher and have the best command of my content. So when I'm off during the summertime, like I feel like reading is the time that I'm going to actually hone the skills I'm going to use in the classroom. And I, you know, over the last couple of years, I've read a lot on politics and economics, which does tie in. I'm a social studies teacher, so that does tie into my content. But I'm really kind of looking forward in the fall to getting back into reading more medieval history. And I got to read some of that over the summertime too. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good going into this school year. Yeah. So I'm, we're looking at the same note sheet here and I'm seeing that you read one fiction book. Now, is this just the one you want to talk about or is that literally the only one that you've read? Oh, I mean, I don't read like hardly any fiction at all. And we are going through the Harry Potter series with my daughter right now. And so we've been going slowly <laughs> through that. So we're on Prisoner of Azkaban right now, which is a very interesting book. I've seen the movie. I, I read the first four books when I was younger and then stopped after the fourth. And I've seen all the movies they are really good. But Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is very interesting. Have you read that? I have not. I read 
two-thirds of the first Harry Potter book when I was in college. And it was, I think there was only two Harry Potter books out at the time. Maybe it was the third that's one, that's but I was reading on your college experience. It really does. It really does. <laughs> I'm just going to own it. You know, I went to Bible college and we were not reading hardly any fiction at all. And I don't know. I think I just read like two thirds or three quarters of it. And like, I'd never picked it back up again. It wasn't like I didn't enjoy it. It was just, I got onto other things. And I, by the time I was back interested in it, I wasn't. So. Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting book from a libertarian perspective. So and what I think book that number I even, is that one? The one this is number. This is number five. Okay. Yeah. And so like, I'm going to butcher this. So if there are any Harry Potter fans that are listening to this, I'm very sorry if I don't accurately represent all of the names and characters that are in the book. <laughs> but essentially what happens is there's like a really evil wizard and he like, it was kind of dead, but not really, but whatever. And then the, in the fourth book, he comes back to life and he kills somebody and like Harry Potter is there to see it happen. And so, but he's the only one that sees it. So when he goes back to like his school or whatever, no one believes that this very powerful wizard had come back to life. And so all of these people that are in the Ministry of Magic, which is like the government of the Harry Potter universe, they try to cover up what happened. So they try to cover up this murder. And then like the media, they have this newspaper called, I think like the Daily Prophet or something like that. And then the media is also trying to cover up everything that happened. And they like constantly smear Harry and lie about what actually happened to him. And so throughout the rest of the book, and I know kind of how it works out because I've seen the movies, you have all of these people from the government that actually wind up working with this really evil wizard in order to try to enable him to take over the world for their own power. So there are like all kinds of like really prominent libertarian themes about the corruption of the corporate press supporting these very <laughs> evil politicians who are trying to use their allegiance to shadowy people to increase their power. And it's amazing to me that as a millennial, we are a part of a generation that grew up reading the Harry Potter series. And now everyone's like a rampant status. Like, I don't understand how you read The Prisoner of Azkaban <laughs> and not just see the parallels between that book and what's happening in our world right now. It just seems so yeah. obvious. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Lord of the Rings trilogy didn't make everybody anarchists. So, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess <laughs> you can't expect much from this right. generation. <laughs> right. So, uh, so I see on, on your fiction list here, you, it looks like you have three books by the same author. So is this a trilogy <laughs> or a series or what, what's, the, what's the situation? Yeah, with that? so I, I think I read Sea of Tranquility first. Okay, so there's this author, Emily St. John Mandel, who is a phenomenal writer. The books are about 200 to 250 pages. That's kind of the length of fiction they are. So it's a little bit shorter than the kind of common fiction that you know, John Grisham novel or Daniel Silva or something like that. So I bought Sea of Tranquility because on the back cover, it talked a little bit about time travel and colonies on the moon. And I was like, ah, I'm into this. And then I'm reading it and it's way more than just that. And it's written super well. And it jumps back and forth in time, not just in the storytelling tactic and technique, but there is also time travel. And I don't want to spoil much, but it's a philosophical book on the one hand even though it's actually, you know, you can just enjoy it by reading it or listening to it. But I also learned that it's also part, it's book three of not quite a trilogy, but a set of three books that are interrelated. Okay. You do not have to read the other two to get one or whatever. Although I've learned that Sea of Tranquility reincorporates characters that I would have known a little bit better had I read those books sooner. And those other two books are The Glass Hotel, I was about to tell you the author. It's Emily St. John Mandel, which I already said. And then Station Eleven. Now, Station Eleven is actually something that 
did become, I think in 2021, a TV show on Max, or it was HBO Max at the time, which I have subsequently watched and is fantastic. Station Eleven is probably, I would say, my favorite of the three books. It is a post-apocalyptic sort of world (laughs) that was obliterated by a flu pandemic. Oh, okay. Okay. This was (laughs) not a COVID. I know, right? (laughs) This is not a COVID book. Okay. But it did happen in the story that there was a, you know, patient zero kind of situation. There's no conspiracy discussion. This is all about the lives of a handful of individuals whose lives intersect. And Station Eleven is actually a reference to a book in the book. Okay, so one of the authors creates this comic. She's into art and she's creating this book. And I'm not going to spoil it because it's it gets a little complex. And it's also just really, really enjoyable to kind of see how these storylines come together. But yeah, the storylines jump between basically the year of the pandemic or the first half of a year of the pandemic where literally it's just like everything goes to crap, right? Because in this particular case, it's actually really, really serious. Like think of all the things they told us COVID <laughs> might do to us. In yes. this story, it actually happened. So like... It's like everything a, Sam Harris wanted to happen during the COVID <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> everything that Sam Harris thinks would make us all just follow the government. Yeah. So what ended up happening was like, News anchors couldn't do the news and the people are running like, like, so, you know, three days in, it was the color bars on television stations because there was nobody there. And the power went out a couple weeks later because there was nobody to run. There was nobody to run the power stations. And so like civilization literally shuts down. Right. Yeah. And so now the book and the movie diverge a little bit in helpful ways, like in ways that are like very acceptable. It's not like, oh, the movie was or the book was better. They shouldn't have done this to the show. Sorry, not movie. But the other part of the storyline in Station Eleven is essentially the, uh, I think it's 20 years, 19, I think it's 19, actually, I don't know why 19, but it's like 19 years into the future, and there are a handful of similar characters, like, so you know who does survive. It's not a big, I'm not spoiling anything at all here. (laughs) And they are part of a traveling symphony where they do, they basically do Shakespeare plays on this circuit they call The Wheel, which is basically a circle of towns in Michigan, I think just in Michigan, but it actually might be like around Lake Michigan. So like the Midwest, right? Yeah. It's fantastic. It's a good show. It's also a really good book. But the fiction books that I read by Emily St. John Mandel, I could tell as like halfway through Sea of Tranquility and then realizing that there's other two books, I'm like, um, well, I'm going to have to read these books. And then there are an additional three books that she has published that are not related to these at all. But I do plan to read sometime in the near future because she's a really good author. So yeah. Yeah, Sea of Tranquility, Station Eleven, Glass Hotel. I don't remember which order was which. I'm pretty sure Glass Hotel was first and then Station Eleven, but I don't remember. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it looks like you... So you have a theme with all of your fiction books here. It's all written by the same author and and connected to each other. It also looks like your summer reading list for nonfiction has a a theme. (laughs) So maybe we should talk about that theme there. Yeah, well, so there's also a history somewhat behind the theme because both of the books, well, there's two books and there was another one that I was also reading along similar lines, which is about the gospel. And so these are books that I've actually read before. And the the one is How God Became King by N.T. Wright and The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight, which I know you've read. And it influenced both of us probably in very similar ways. One of the biggest questions that keep coming up for many Christians who go to church and want to share their faith and want to be able to communicate the gospel 
to their friends, to their family members, to their kids, to people who haven't heard the gospel or who don't even believe in God or haven't even, you know, are biblical illiterates, whatever the case may be, one of the questions for serious Christians is how do I share the gospel and what do I say? And what are the essential components of that gospel, of that message? What do I tell them they need to believe? Or what do I tell them they need to do? Or what information do they have to have in order to respond to a proper gospel call, right? Or put another way, how do I witness to people and what what are the right things to say? Okay. So that's setting the stage for why this is an important question. And you and I got into a discussion with some friends of ours about what the core nature of the gospel was. Not like, what can we say about the gospel in a much larger sense? And what is the meaning of the gospel when we hear the, the good consequences, news? What does that, yeah. The consequences. What is the personal import? You know, like the internal consequences of knowing what the gospel is. All that set aside, we got into a discussion about like what was the core gospel message in the New Testament and specifically in the gospels and in Acts. And then, of course, out of that comes what Paul said and what Peter said, right? So I decided I would go back and reread the King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. I actually started physically reading it again because I actually had a physical copy. And then I was like, shoot, I'm going to be driving for the next eight hours on a trip to and from somewhere. And my wife and I were talking about this topic. So we listened to the audiobook. Actually, we listened to most of the audiobook. So I kind of read it <laughs> twice. So anyway... The King Jesus Gospel might be one of the most important books because Scott McKnight does not pull any punches in saying that we can say a lot of true things about the gospel. We can say a lot of true things that are biblical, that are theologically accurate about about the consequences of the gospel. But when we talk about what the word means, what Evangelion means, and what the original authors meant in their context, it actually meant something a little bit more specific than when we say, hey, the good news about how you can be saved or that you can be saved and here's how, right? Like that's often the way that you and I often will hear it being said is, hey, you know what? You need salvation. It has been provided for you. Here's what you need to know. And that's the gospel. And when we get into the biblical text, it actually is a lot more concrete, I would say. And it's also a little bit more specific, right? than just that, even though all those things are true. And that's part of the conversation we have when we say we're going to witness to other people. Um, And then also there's the, okay, so giving the concept away, the King Jesus gospel, right? McKnight would say something along the lines of that God has made Jesus the king is the like phraseology of like, this is what the good news is. God has made Jesus king, right? And so the other book that I have written on this list, which is by N.T. Wright, which was published in, I think, 2010, 2011, might be wrong by a couple of years, but over a decade ago, is how do the Gospels communicate what was happening when God, I'm sorry, to, I have to say this in a way that like doesn't put the title in the sentence what I'm asking, but basically, <laughs> what story is the, are the Gospels telling? And that story is a story of how God became king, how Jesus was made king would be another way of putting it in in a similar way. And one thing that was really helpful about the N.T. Wright thing is he goes into a handful of the ways in which different traditions in the Christian faith communicate what is the gospel and what does the gospel mean to us and what is the importance of understanding that gospel. And he uses the analogy of a four-part speaker system. And And I think this is sort of like showing his age a little bit because it's like you put on an LP and like you sit in a room where there's a speaker in each corner, (laughs) which that sounds lovely, Tom, but like 
I don't have that. Not very practical. Spatial audio is what we're using today, guy. But anyway, so think surround sound, but he has four speakers, right? So he talks about how each of us have in common evangelical parlance, there might be one speaker turned up really, really loud and distorted because that's the only thing these people want to talk about is this one element of the gospel or this important element of the gospel that's true that he affirms. And there's other parts of other speakers that are like turned way, way down. And his goal is to say, hey, these all need to be in proper harmony and balance for us to get the full story of what the Bible is telling, what God is telling through the writers of the gospel of, and in the way he would put it is how God became king. So I know you have read books along those lines. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily what you read this summer. Did you read anything in the, in that realm this summer? Or did you just no, I, uh, let me take up that task? No, no yeah, I did that, that was all you this summer, Doug. So I did, I did read a little bit of biblical studies this summer, um, but I didn't read anything in particular on the gospel. But I do agree with your characterization of both of those books. And I think that they do a very good job of trying to situate I think Scott McKnight even more so than N.T. Wright. I think they do a very good job of trying to situate the language of the gospel in the first century. And I really appreciate that about both of their works. And I think one of the really important points that they both make as biblical scholars, even though N.T. Wright, I feel like, you know, I think, I think you and I have talked about this before. I'm much less impressed by N.T. Wright's more recent output than I am by the work that he published much earlier in his career. But I think that they both do a very good job of trying to think through exactly how Paul in particular uses the term euangelion in his letters. And that's one of the things that I really very much appreciate about that work linguistically is, again, they're trying to think Paul's thoughts after him instead of saying the Christian tradition is assumed that he meant X by this word. So we're going to just assume that that word means X. Actually going back and looking at the way that Paul uses that language in his letters is so critically important if you want to be faithful to the scriptures. And these books are definitely very helpful starter points for people that want to look at this from an alternative and I think more historically grounded perspective. So did you read anything in biblical studies this summer that was like about Paul or the gospels or anything? Yeah. So actually one of the books that I, and I've been wanting to read it for a while, but one of the books that I read this summer was by a New Testament scholar from Australia. He's an ethicist. So he does a lot of work on New Testament ethics and he has some excellent books. His name is Brian Rosner. And the book that I read was called Paul and the Law. And he deals with the question of the relationship between Paul and the Jewish law, which is a question that I grew up in a Lutheran church. And so that was kind of one of the big issues that was drilled into my head during the confirmation process and when I was younger. How does Paul understand the law and what does it mean for Christians? And so I have some very, I have some very nuanced perspectives on that issue, but I think that this book does a very good job. And I don't, I don't agree with, I don't agree with absolutely everything that he says in the book, but I think overall his argument is very correct. And essentially what he says is that when it comes to the law, there are three things that Paul does with the Jewish law. In the first hand, he kind of, when he's talking about the law, he has this what he calls a polemical repudiation of the law. So in other words, the law no longer is the thing that defines who is and who is not a part of the family of God. And the law as law, like the law as the series of 613 commandments, no longer applies to Christians. Like these are not the things that are supposed to define us. And so if you look at the Pauline literature, he repudiates the idea that the law is the law that defines the family of God. But this Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the law is not significant. 
So he's going to say that what Paul does is he reappropriates the law and he uses it as prophecy and then also as a mechanism by which we can have an example for how we ought to live our life. So again, it's not that we're bound to the prescription of the 613 uh, codes in the law, but a really good example of this kind of reappropriation of the law is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, you guys are eating meat sacrificed to idols. We know that these idols don't actually exist, but there are people in your congregation that think that these idols actually exist. And when you eat meat, you're actually harming their faith. And then Paul gives this example in first Corinthians chapter 10, at the end of this long argument where he says, Hey, if you look back at the law, Israel was wandering around in the wilderness and they kind of got caught up in worshiping these idols and God wound up killing a bunch of them. And this was written as an example for us to follow so that we don't wind up accidentally serving idols. So Paul is not saying that the church is defined by the law and he's not saying that we have to follow the precepts of the law, but the law is still as a reappropriated text, something that points to Jesus and can also serve as an example for us. And he also says that the law is replaced by this Christocentric ethic. So no longer do we look to the law to define who is and who is not a Christian, we look to Christ. And the thing that's supposed to define our behavior as Christians is this kind of cruciform pattern that's set forth in passages like Philippians chapter two. So it's a really good book. And I think that for people that struggle with the question of the law and what should we do with it and what does it mean for us to kind of be biblically faithful with the law as Christians? This is an excellent overview of a lot of the, the main issues. And I thought it was just a really helpful summary and a really helpful reminder of that entire Paul law debate. I have a question about that, if whether or not he covers a particular topic, because I've always been interested in the supposed, and I say supposed not because I don't believe it, but the, well, I should say alleged or whatever, difference between ceremonial and purity laws and the moral laws in the Torah. Does yeah. he have a discussion about that? I, yeah, I think he does briefly at the beginning of his book, but he just makes the point that there's nothing in the text of the law itself that would suggest that it was ever meant to be divided up that way. And I really okay. do think that in, in a lot of ways, you know, we have this post-enlightenment conception of religion where you can, where we in the modern world can easily separate categorically what we mm -hmm. consider religion from society and politics. And they don't have those divisions in the ancient world. Those are a product of the enlightenment. And so one of the points that he makes is that there's just like, there's no textual justification whatsoever for divide, for dividing the law up. And a lot of the, the, a lot of the ways that theologians have tried to slice the law into ceremonial and civil and all that kind of stuff have just been kind of arbitrary impositions of modern conceptions of what we consider to be civil and ceremonial ceremonial back onto the text. And so you have to kind of take the law wholesale. Either we are obligated to follow the entire law or the law has to be doing something else for Christians. And he, he makes the argument that it's actually there to do something else. Awesome. Okay. That's actually kind of where I, I would say tentatively sort of landed, but I never really delved into it when I was going through seminary and stuff. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that this was, that it wasn't a clear cut. The Bible tells us that there's this tripart division or whatever. So, hey folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Christ is King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly eBooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. 
in addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. So the next question I want to talk about here in this conversation is some of the books that we've been reading that our listeners can actually benefit from the fact that we're reading them. One will have already come out, which is a book that I just finished by Justin Brierley. For those who may not know, Justin Brierley is the was the host of the Unbelievable Podcast. Oh, uh, and I, I, you know, when I say <laughs> was, show. yeah, I know. It's like, oh man, he's not doing it anymore. But he's moved on to do other things that are very similar, but just a different kind of ministry. I had an, an excellent conversation with him and that episode will have already aired, I think the previous episode to the one we're recording right now. His new book is out, I would say, in a couple weeks from when we released this. It's mid-September, I believe. The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. The book itself, you know, I had a pre-copy here that they sent, and so I can't really read a whole lot from it because it's kind of like one of those, not quite embargoed, but like needs permission kind of thing. But <laughs> the chapters are, <laughs> that's funny. I hesitate to say this, but I didn't realize I would like this book as much as I did. I thought I was reading this book, having this great conversation with Justin, this is a good topic or whatever, but like I really got into the book because I think for a lot of people who are serious about their faith, they also are serious about what do I do with any doubts that I have? And some of those doubts, whether from even just, I mean, it could be the person strong in their faith in Christ, they still wonder what is the answer to something that Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett says about the existence of God, right? Because these people aren't stupid. Right. These new atheists, they may have made blunders in terms of some of their rhetoric and argumentation or even their ethics from time to time, but they're not stupid people. These are people who are recognized and they obviously threw a big challenge at the church after 9-11 with the problem of evil. How do we wrestle with that? So there's a whole lot in that new atheism movement that like, challenge people. And so for me, I, I, here's a story. My wife and I, in 2005, we were, I don't know, four months married. We were in Lake Tahoe where I was working at the time. I had to do a business trip. My wife came out to visit me. We went to Lake Tahoe just to hang out for two days for a week nice. that I had off. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. You know what we did <laughs> at, at night? <laughs> you know what we did at night when like all the entertainment was going on? We sat and we watched Richard Dawkins debate somebody in our hotel room. Not in our hotel room. We were watching him on TV in our hotel room. I think it was in Lynchburg. And so it was at some woman's college that's in Lynchburg, Virginia. And like a lot of Liberty students were there trying to challenge Richard Dawkins. And honestly, I mean, again, these are, I don't want to disparage anybody, but like Richard Dawkins looked good compared to a bunch of college students yeah. asking him college yes. level questions, right? So <laughs> surprise, we, surprise. that's what we did. That was the kinds of things that I was interested in when Richard Dawkins had recently published The God Delusion, right? So when Justin Brierley has this book about, you know, this is nearly 20 years later, he's talking about how new atheism grew old. We kind of already know that in sort of like, oh yeah, that's right. There was that new atheism movement. Where are those guys? And so he's talking about how there are a lot of atheists who are no longer anti-theists, even if they are now just like, yeah, I don't believe in God, but I am not against religion anymore. Yeah. Sam Harris might be the one exception because he's gone a certain direction in 
trying to create an alternative <laughs> ethic. I know he's gone to the, the, the it's, never it's, hard, it's, hard, it's hard to, it's hard, yeah. It is hard to watch. But anyway, and it's hard, hard not to chuckle when you just or roll your eyes when you think of Sam Harris and what he's doing right now. But other people like Peter Bogosian, Dave Rubin, whom we now know is far more conservative. These are people who used to be disparaging of religion. Now, he also talked about Jordan Peterson and some other people as well that are helping people realize the importance of religion. Now, Peterson is Christian in the sort of cultural milieu sense, right? Yeah. If he has yet to have a personal conversion experience, we don't know. Apparently, some in his family have. And so, there is a lot of belief and there's a lot of vibe that, oh, rejecting God isn't in vogue anymore. And taking seriously the spiritual questions that I have, the existential questions that I have, which is partly what explains the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, is actually what he's writing about, is what Briarly is writing about here. And Justin is actually thinking that there is probably a tide coming back in and saying, we need to be prepared for this. And one thing that we don't want to do is be caught answering yesterday's questions really, really well when there's new questions that are coming up. And so, yeah, anyway, that's the... At this point, someone who's listened to the episode last week is like, Doug, you, you totally botched the description of the book or something. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's not true. But they're like, yeah, I already heard all this last week. Come on, keep. let's go talk about something else. <laughs> so Alex, who do you have either has come out on your podcast already? Because I want to pitch, yeah, I want you to share about your podcast for those who may not have listened to it. Who have you talked to and what are their books about? Okay, so there's a writer for the Libertarian Institute named Lori Calhoun. And way back in the day when I first started my show, she was actually the first internet interview that I ever did. I I did an interview before that with one of my friends that was really cool, but she came on to talk about an article that she wrote for the Libertarian Institute called The Military Industrial Cult. And a lot of the work that Lori has done over her career has focused on the military industrial complex and the incentives and philosophy of why she's a, a professionally trained philosopher, has a really great book called War and Delusion. I had her, I think it was actually the first episode that was ever released when I, uh, after I started working for LCI, where she talked about just the problems with the just war theory. So she has a brand new book out over at the Libertarian Institute called Questioning the COVID Company Line. And it is a fantastic book. And it is an edited collection of essays that she wrote throughout the course of the COVID pandemic. And what's amazing is that they're on chronological order and they all have dates. So as I was reading through this, you were kind of, you, you, you can go back and kind of think about where you were at when all of this stuff was taking place. The subtitle for the book is called Critical Thinking in Hysterical Times. And she argues that the way that the COVID narrative was crafted by the government and the mainstream media made it almost impossible for people to think critically about what was actually going on, which caused all of these problems downstream that were actually much worse for society Mm. than the pandemic itself. And one of the major themes that is recurring in her book is that the same set of propaganda and the same set of financial incentives that are used to justify all of the United States military conflicts overseas that was the exact same playbook that our government used for COVID-19. They created this life or death situation where everyone had to rally around these government officials and we had to do whatever it took uh, up to and including legitimizing collateral damage, people losing their homes, alcoholics going back to drinking, Mm. uh, you know, kids committing suicide. There were all of these terrible things that happened as a result of it, but we just accepted it because that was the narrative. And it's both an incredibly enlightening book and an incredibly frustrating book to read. 
but it's absolutely essential. And she covers literally every aspect of the pandemic response and just destroys all of it, not just mm. uh, empirically, but philosophically as well. There's so much great data in that book. I learned so much from reading it. And if you want to check out, I did like a two hour long interview with her. I had to break it up into two parts. On my show, that'll be episode 73 and 74. The second one, episode 74, the second half of the interview, gotten some really crazy stuff that uh, she addresses in her book. Excellent, mm. excellent interview. And I highly recommend everyone check that book out. And really all of her work is, is great. Let's see. We're recording this about a week after Rand Paul submitted to, I forget what agency, yes. um, to look into Fauci lying to Congress about gain of yes. function research that now that we've seen some emails. And, you know, I was watching a, his interview on Fox News because I wasn't watching it on Fox News. I don't watch Fox News, but I was watching the YouTube video because yes. <laughs> that's what I watch on, right? So I'm watching this and I'm sharing this with my wife and I just look at her and I'm like, I don't, I don't really know how anybody could go through what we did during COVID and not at least be just a little more skeptical of the government. Just a little. Like, give me a little bit of like, okay, yeah, they made mistakes. I don't trust them as much as I used to. Like, come on, just give me that, right? Like, and and, you know, and some of this stuff is just damning, right? Like, and and it's just like mind-boggling. On the one hand, on the other, it's like, well, of course, this is how the government works. We know this as libertarians. So anyway, you have this other book that I'm very interested in hearing about by Carol Roth. Can you talk about that? And then we'll talk about what's on our shelves. Yeah, absolutely. So Carol Roth, she worked in finance for a really long time. I did not know who she was, but she has a brand new book out called You Will Own Nothing. And I, several months ago, I think she sent an advanced copy of it to Robbie Bernstein, who's the co-host of Part of the Problem. And he has his own podcast called Run Your Mouth, which is really funny, but sometimes he has like really serious interviews with authors. So I, I heard her for the first time on that show. And so the thesis of You Will Own Nothing is that the key to uh, wealth and the key to freedom is ownership. So as libertarians, we believe in private property mm-hmm. rights and you can can actually accumulate. Uh, you can actually accumulate the kind of wealth that sustains um, economic productivity and that creates, you know, the rising boat for all people, unless you have self ownership and private property. And she argues in this book that there are very that there are several very powerful forces in society right now, all connected to the World Economic Forum, that are designed to try to undermine ownership. And so the World Economic Forum has this platform that you can go and read on their website. And if you don't know what the World Economic Forum is, it's essentially this cabal of government leaders and business leaders and media leaders. They get together once a year in Davos, Switzerland, and try to figure out how they can direct the economy of the world in a sustainable direction. And so they have all of these plans and there are a lot of very powerful and high profile people, uh, asset managers like Larry Fink at BlackRock, Vanguard State Street, like these uh, investment firms that control trillions of dollars of capital. All of them are tied up into the World Economic Forum and they are deliberately investing in companies that are trying to undermine the traditional ownership framework of Western civilization. And instead, they're turning to more of a rental-based or a loan-based society. And that undermines our wealth and makes it harder for us to secure economic prosperity. She thinks that this is both uh, very intentional and that these economic changes in our world are designed to benefit the elites. And she looks at several different she looks at several different sectors of the American economy, and she looks at several different power centers to try to explain exactly how it is that we are moving as a world in a direction where people are not going to own anything except for a handful of self-selected elites who will benefit tremendously by being at the center of 
that power. So it's an incredibly important book. I know, Doug, that you had Michael Rechtenwald on your show to talk about his book, The Great Reset, a couple of months ago, which is a great book. And this is kind of in a lot of ways, like a sister volume to that book, The Great Reset. So I highly recommend it for everyone. Just really, really good stuff. Does she talk about, like you talked about the rental economy, right? And so we're all used to subscribing to things, right? We subscribe to, I mean, we're recording on Zencaster where we subscribe. There's no way for me to own software. And so that makes actual, it actually kind of makes sense with software, right? Like you subscribe to it, you use it for as long as you want, you pay for it as long as you use it, and you always have the most up-to-date version, et cetera. That makes a whole lot of sense. What does the rental economy look like beyond software? Is it more like, hey, you don't actually own your car because you're just going to borrow it? Or like, we all share it? Like there's the sharing economy as well. That's a component of this too. Right. Yes. And a lot of the thought for that is that they're going to make like, I say they, again, you have to, you have to look at this. From oh, like now you're going standpoint. down. Now, now yes. we're uh, dog well, whistling, right? When you say well, they. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I said they, yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly who they is. It's company, it's, it's like investment firms like State Street, BlackRock, and Vanguard that invest in all of these companies. So the World Economic Forum has this system called ESG, Environmental Social Governance. And all of these investment firms have bought into ESG. And so essentially what they do is they give these companies credit scores. So if yep. you meet a certain set of environmental in a, set, a certain set of environmental standards, or if you meet a, so, a certain set of like social principle standards, or if you have yep. certain governance within your company, then you're going to have access to this investment capital that other firms that don't comply with those ESG scores won't get. And this is all being directed by the World Economic Forum. And so like with the automotive industry, if your company will receive uh, investment funding from these firms, if you are promoting these hybrid cars or cars that run on sustainable sources of fuel. The idea behind this, as Carol Roth is going to claim, is that a lot of these, a lot of these programs are designed to make cars prohibitively expensive for the average American to purchase. So instead, you're going to have these big corporations that are going to buy up fleets of cars and they're going to rent them back to you for a profit. So you won't have any control over the vehicles that you drive. And she explains how that works in housing, with education loans, and all kinds of other aspects of the economy. So it's the idea that these massive corporations are going to, because they can receive funding that that comes from these big investments, they're going to purchase up all of these assets and they're going to make you rent them. And these government officials are going to come in and essentially tax and regulate our ability to own private property out of existence. We're already seeing that happen throughout the economy. So it's very powerful and you can see it happening in real time. And she's trying to explain to us how we can avoid that being our future. How do I know that this isn't sort of conspiracy? Because it it gets in, it, it seems like it could be in that territory. Yeah, you would think that it is until you go to the World Economic Forum's website and they say all of it right there. <laughs> you know, like uh, it would be right. so it would be it, like it would seem like a backroom deal. But I challenge everybody that thinks that 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 theory sounds crazy. This is on the front line. Right. Yeah, they're not quiet about this. Like they're very open that this is what they want the direction of the world's economy to head in because they believe that this is going to be equitable for everybody. And Carol Roth, and other people that are like Michael Rechtenwald are saying, no, actually, it's just going to lead to the same situation that took place in Soviet Union during the time of collectivization. So <laughs> that's the thesis you know there. What, Alex? Anyone that I wants to I fact check this. that, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. I was, was going to make a sarcastic remark. I think I know what's going to fix this. We need a wealthy Christian prince to buy up everything, and then we will have Christian monarchy. See, I like that. Stephen Wolf would very much agree with that. <laughs> Maybe Larry oh, Fink can be our Christian prince. I'm not sure. Is he a Christian? <laughs> we'll just have BlackRock own everything. It'd be great. Oh, my gosh. 
This is going to go downhill fast. All right. Lightning round-ish. What's on your shelf that you're going to get to reading soon? Okay. So right now I'm currently working through The Counter-Revolution of Science by F.A. Hayek, which is a really fantastic book on philosophy, how we learn to use the language of science to accept authoritarianism. Really, really deep book. The New Deal Rebels is a new one from Amity Schley. She's a great American historian. It's a collection of edited essays and statements by people that oppose the New Deal. So very, very interesting stuff. More books on the Federal Reserve. The Creature from Jekyll Island by Edward Griffin and The Great Deformation or Deformation by David Stockman are both on my list. They're a little bit longer, but they talk about the Federal Reserve and other economic regulations and how they've destroyed our economy. And then lastly, there's a book that I'm really, I I used to read every time I had a unit, I teach nine units a year in class, I would read a book that went along with that unit. So I'm going to try to get back into that habit this school year. So the next one I have uh, coming up is called Inventing the Middle Ages by Norman Cantor. I've been wanting to read this for a couple of years now because it seems like it's a really interesting interesting book, but I think it's going to be one of those worldview destroyers. His argument is that our Western conception of the Middle Ages actually comes from the cultural and historical context of the 20th century scholars that produced uh, scholarship on the Middle Ages. And so he has chapters on like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and how the situations that they faced in their personal lives and in their socio-political context actually were the determining factors for their reading of medieval history. And so a lot of what we know about the Middle Ages is actually just a reflection of 20th century values. Should be a very, very, very interesting, interesting book. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. It's very much like Albert Schweitzer's The Quest for the Historical Jesus, except instead okay. of it being about Jesus, it's about the Middle Ages. So should be some <laughs> okay, really interesting okay, stuff. Interesting. But I see you you have a very interesting list of books yeah. on your shelf. Well, I okay, so you have told me that Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, but the historian <laughs> Tom Holland, um, who's written several books, but one book, uh, Dominion, um, how the I think is how the Christian Revolution changed the world. <clears throat> uh, I think that's the subtitle or something like it, was really, really worth reading. And then also the book that I mentioned previously, this by Justin Brierley, who I I was talking about, he talked a lot about Tom Holland. And I had actually already ordered the book while I was reading Justin's book. Because I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to take Alex's advice and read Dominion. I'm about 20% in. It's really good. I do struggle, though, reading it in the sense of like, I don't know if he's just spending three paragraphs on a particular individual. And do I need to hold on to this for like three chapters? Or is this just like, hey, he's just telling me about this one particular like skirmish or episode in antiquity or whatever. And so I struggle a little bit with that because it's not very well divided in each chapter. Like there's a chapter and then there's just like, he writes for four right, pages. Yes. <laughs> and that's a little bit of a struggle for me, just maybe just conceptually and, and whatever. Uh, on the opposite end of that spectrum is a different book. Um, and I'm going to be doing an interview with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. This is a book I've been looking for. So there's two books this year that I've been insanely looking forward to coming out. And uh, no, sorry, three books. Uh, and this is one of them. It's called Critical Dilemma, and it is about what you think it's about. I interviewed Neil Shenvey earlier this year on critical race theory, a little bit, we talked a little bit about nationalism. But this is like the definitive Christian book on how do we respond to critical theory, critical social studies, uh, critical social justice. He calls it contemporary critical theory. CCT is what they're calling it. I will tell you, it has taken something away from me. I cannot no, I can no longer just write off all of this woke stuff as like, oh, this is just neo-Marxism or this is just Marxism mm-hmm. or whatever. They take a very nuanced approach to how should Christians respond, not just like, hey, this is wrong and here's how we can defend against that statement or that racial program or whatever anti-racist philosophy from the Bible. 
they're like, hey, this is actually partially true and Christians should not re- overreact to uh, a partial truth and we can have discussions about these things and we should not get caught up in the discussion over terminology and just discuss the topic, uh, the concepts themselves and the meaning behind the concepts themselves. And so I'm only about, I would say about 20% in. I plan to finish that in pretty pretty quick time because it's a topic that I'm a lot more familiar with than like the stuff that Tom Holland is talking about. But I am very much looking forward to that interview, which probably, I mean, given the amount of time it's going to take for this to come out and so forth, it might actually not be that far into the distant future that yeah. that I do the interview with them. The book itself isn't coming out till October. And so the table of contents, the page numbers on the table of contents and the copy they sent me just says zero, zero for everything. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and the footnotes are a little weird. Like there's actually commas in the, not the footnotes themselves, but like the reference number up above in the text. It's like the end of a sentence has like footnote 25, comma, 26, comma, 27. And I'm like, oh, okay. They haven't like fully Maps. developed <laughs> their little system or whatever. So Critical Dilemma by Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. That's, that was one of the three books that I was really looking forward to this year. And I'll tell you the other two. One I already have, which is called The Second Testament, Scott McKnight's New Testament translation. It's very rigid and jarring. And it's kind of meant to make you feel like you're reading it for the first time, New Testament. And then the other one is, it's funny, N.T. Wright's second edition of his Kingdom New Testament or New Testament for everyone <laughs> or whatever. It's coming out in a few months. So anyway, but Critical Dilemma, I, I've known about it for over a year that it's coming out and I'm just so looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be good. Oh, I have one fiction book. I don't read much Stephen King, hardly ever Oh, yes, all. I saw uh, that but one. Fa- yeah, <laughs> Fairy Tale came out sometime around Christmas in hardback and it came out in hard, uh, soft cover this summer. And I took that to the beach when I went on vacation and I was reading it. It's really good. Um, it's a little bit more fantasy than I expected, even though I probably should have expected what it was. But it's not horror and gore. There's a little bit of deformity, let's just put it that way, in it. <laughs> but it's a really neat story. So, very oh, tough. Cool. Even, even though Stephen King is a radical statist, he still has yeah, good that's true. literature. He is, he is. <laughs> I will say he has probably written my favorite fiction book ever, which is funny because I've literally only read two Stephen King books and this is one of them, <laughs> which is 112263, which is an alternate history of like, what if you could go back in time and change the JFK assassination? It's a pretty cool time travel story. It's, it sounds amazing. awesome. It's probably my favorite novel. It's also 1100 pages, but yeah. <laughs> well, Stephen King, Stephen King, I should just like, I repeat myself, right? Right. right. Oh, All man, right. Well, stuff. this has been good. I think you and I are very much love to talk. We very much love to talk about the books that we're reading. We often talk about it off air as well. And I'm thinking here in a few months, we'll get back on and talk about what we finished, what's on our plates. Maybe if we, if it delays too much, we'll probably be like, what'd you get for Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me, man. I'm ready. So, all right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. 
The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.